Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the very virtual studio today from a hotel lobby in Jakarta. I'm joined by Oscar Venhaus, who is the co-founder of The Desk in Hong Kong. We'll get to that story in a minute. Oscar, welcome to the show. Hi, Graham. Um, Very nice meeting you. Yeah, it's good to have you here. You know, I think I was the last time we were supposed to meet in Hong Kong, but it didn't kind of work out. Now you're in Indonesia and Jakarta. I'm in Thailand, so anything can happen. But we're here now speaking, so we take the opportunity. Global nomads. Yeah, exactly. But you, I mean, well, you're not originally from Hong Kong, are you? From Holland, I guess, with a name like that. Yeah, well, the, the 10 second in- introduction is that um, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, raised right. in Holland, studied in the UK and lived and worked in Asia for the last 10 plus years. So uh, your your parents are Korean? No, I'm adopted. So uh, that's the reason why I was, I was raised in Holland. So I've right. lived for 20 years in Holland, but actually overseas I've been 20 years as well. So I actually I've been longer overseas than I've been in Holland. It's interesting, a very similar story to you we had on the show. I don't know if you know him, Jonny Oostven, a fellow, well, Dutch, I suppose, but he's living in, in Singapore. He was, uh, well, Korean, but adopted by a Dutch family, moved to oh, okay. Singapore. He runs he runs an art gallery, an online art gallery out of Singapore. So Interesting. There you go. It's a small world. So you were brought up in Holland, but you your, your first sort of contact with Asia was when? When did you come back here in in work capacity? In 1997, because yeah. I remember that day and year, because that was actually on the day there was the handover of Hong Kong. Oh, right. Good um, timing. And I, but I did real, I realize that. So I thought, holy moly, this is big fireworks they have ah, here ah. every year. But <laughs> with music and everything. Uh, but it just turned out it was actually the handover. You thought it was for you. So you, you, well, you came from Europe to Hong Kong on the day that Hong Kong was being handed back to China. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, co- coincidence for work. Yeah. Wow. So that must have been crazy. I mean, it must have been a crazy time to be in Hong Kong then, right? Because I think when when the handover happened, there was obviously you know a lot of the expats who were ready to leave who were leaving. Um, mm. You know, because they thought, oh, this is the end of an era. I think there was a bit of a gap, wasn't there, before Hong Kong really reinvented itself. What was it like in those early days when you were in Hong Kong? Well, from what I can remember, so it's, I, I actually was working and living in, in London. So, uh, of course, there was, there was this UK-Hong Kong connection there. Um, when I arrived in Hong Kong, the first thing that I think for most people that arrive is is the smell. Actually... Hong Kong has a very distinct smell. <laughs> uh, I don't smell it anymore, but I, I remember at the time, yeah, Hong Kong smells different than other cities. Uh, I think Seoul has the same thing. You smell just a lot of garlic when you go to Seoul. <laughs> um, the other thing that I noticed in 1997 was there were no coffee shops. Um, organic food wasn't big then. Right. Um, so, I mean, the industries, of course, have changed a little bit, but I think overall... But that's the first thing I can actually remember uh, from 1997. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. It's interesting, isn't it? When you, you go to new places like you are in Jakarta today, smells, I mean, I've talked about this before in Asia Tech Podcast, smells are one of those things that really define a place, you know, it's like, and they stay with you, don't they? You know, like when you smell something, I, one of my memories of 
Indonesia, Oscar, is the smell of the Kretek cigarettes. So that the, <laughs> the, yeah, the, yeah. the clove cigarette, whenever I smell that clove smell, I always get taken whisked back magically to the, to the, the mid nineties when I was backpacking around Indonesia. I think, oh, well, I'm, I'm there again. It's, it's amazing how that sort of tucks it away in your brain somewhere. So whenever you kind of go back to these places, you're, you know, you, you, you know, you walk into a store somewhere and you smell something. Oh, wow. Well, I'm back yeah. in Seoul or I'm back in Indonesia. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess you've been to Hong Kong as well. Like the, the smell, when you con- go to Asia, China, yeah. I think uh, Seoul as well, and I'm not sure Tokyo, but you have durian. Yep. So durian is this durian. overpowering sort of <laughs> dead body smell. Uh, and now I'm just completely used to it. I just don't smell it anymore. But well. sometimes I wish I could actually smell it again the way i used to smell <laughs> i don't know all right all right okay so let's back up a little bit on durian this is the knobbly the knobbly <laughs> huge it's like a basketball sized fruit i mean if you don't know asia very well you may not have seen this thing but they sell them out on the street don't they they cut them up into slices and i i, I remember i was in uh where do I go? I went to Shanghai a, a while back and I was just in Shanghai recently but bef- the time before we went on a corporate gig. We went as a guest of uh, Huawei and uh, they brought in a whole bunch of Americans who, who'd mm. never been to China or, or I don't even know if some of them had been to Asia. And they sat them around the table and we went to this like Michelin star restaurant and they served up for dessert durian. And it was just so funny because like watching them eat it, they were like, oh, this tastes like custard and thought, oh my God, it's like onion flavored custard. I mean, how do you explain that? But it's like such a unique Asian thing. Is that are you have you got to like eating this thing yet? I mean, are you having like durian ice cream and stuff? And no, no, I actually I I love eating it. I I I really like it. And but it really took me quite a few years um, okay. to get used to it. And now, what I said, I don't really I don't find it offensive anymore. But at the start, it was so pungent that it just could smell it. I could smell it. Everywhere, supermarket streets, uh, you, know, you name it. But now I just, I, I don't smell it anymore. Well, you, you need to go back to Europe and cleanse and come back, you know, maybe yeah. you can re-experience yeah. it again for the first time. So, Oscar, tell us a little bit about yourself. What, what are you? Are you a, are you a developer? Are you a, an entrepreneur? Are you a, you know, a marketer? How do you define yourself? Yeah, very good question. I think I get this question asked quite a lot, only because of my background as well, because... I was adopted, and obviously people ask me where you're from, and work-wise as well. So I would say I, I describe myself more as a global nomad, um, because if you look at my background, so taking a step back, if you don't mind. Uh, so I was actually trained as a designer. I studied uh, design in uh, art, actually, in uh, Holland. And then actually I went to the Royal College of Arts and um, continued to f- study fashion design. Right, yeah, I saw that. Uh, and then went from fashion design into um, designing fashion accessories. So in 97, uh, this was quite a new subject for companies, especially retail. You typically had fashion designers that did apparel, and then they also designed bags and accessories. It wasn't actually uh, something that that was separate. Um, So I, I was actually specializing in like, fashion accessories and that included from eyewear to belts and you name it including footwear uh, so I started working for Nike and Adidas and the bigger uh, sports brands 
and slowly got involved in product development because that's a big part of, of, of actually designing. And that's also the reason why I actually ended up in Asia a lot. You know, all, the, all the manufacturing was done here in uh, China mm. or in Vietnam or in, you know, you had some, some offices in Taiwan. Mm. Um, so I got actually, after sort of fit, to, to make a really long story short, I, I started from design, um, supply, uh, let's say, uh, product development, logistics, and then ended up in supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that after 15 years, I realized, well, I'm not sure if this is really what I want, what I signed off for when I started my, let's say, design school. Well, after 15 uh, years? <laughs> well, you know, you sort of, no, you, you you kind of I'm fairly practical, so you just go along. You have to pay your bills. No, the, 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 there was some creative work involved, but right, right. people just kept asking me, "Hey," because um, I, I really enjoyed factories. For me, I was like a child, especially mm. the first first time in factories. That just it opened my eyes to a complete new world. Know how things are actually made. No, I was. Mm. If you live in Europe, you think, well, there's probably even in '97. There's probably robots think doing this stuff for you, but this it, it's so labor intensive. No, um, what, what what you think are done is is what what you think is automated is actually done by Chinese hands or Vietnamese hands or wherever this is in Asia. So uh, yeah, I found it very intriguing that whole process, mm. uh, and that that kept me. Because that was a really steep learning curve for me. So, and that kept me in the sort of supply, well, let's say, uh, pro development environment. So, when, when you were starting out, when, when you, were, you, you were at the Royal College of Art in the UK, which is like one of the leading, I suppose, art institutions in Europe. I don't know how it's, but it's sort of so well known. And you're surrounded. It's got all the legacy of the designers that have come from there as well. well. What kind of fashion design were you doing? Were you sort of was was that sort of like accessories, as you say, like you know, like sunglasses, eyeglasses, or, or what? What kind of things were you designing back then? Well, I was actually one of the well, I was the very first student of that department. It was completely new. Um, and when actually when I started the course, I realized well the, actually the focus was mostly on leatherware, right. so there's leather bags, uh, leather shoes, um, anything because there was a relationship with Court Wainers College, which is one of the renowned uh, uh, colleges for for leatherware in the UK. Mm. Um, I was kind of in between. I mean because it was really undefined. What is what is no what are Fashion accessories. You no, know, you mentioned watches. Uh, you have a whole bunch of other fashion accessories that are not made from leather. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think for them it was also sort of you know, exploration. Okay, what 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 is fashion accessories? That does that include eyewear? So I had one uh, fellow student, and he had an industrial design background. So he he did a lot of you no know, eyewear and sort of bags, but more from an industrial design perspective. Hmm. Um, but that, that's also part of fashion accessories. Right. Were you actually crafting shoes? I mean, I use the word craft because it is a craft in a way, isn't it? Were you making shoes? You talk about leatherware. Uh, I never made a shoe. Maybe flip flop because I wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't that skilled. Um, 
but but he did learn um, right. how to work with leather. Right, right. That's- but I guess I guess what I'm saying is a very manual thing, isn't it? It's a very hands-on way to product development, isn't it? You, you're not, you know, it's very much like using your hands, you and the materials and your relationship with the materials, and it's very labor-intensive as well. So. You know, if, if you sort of then go through your trajectory of your career, like going into factories and so on, where it, it's almost like taking it to the other extreme as well. Uh, how is it you ended up at that side of things? You know, <laughs> what was the well, attraction about that? Um, I think I was just very curious uh, when I was younger. Um, uh, well, I think in, in reality, of course, you start with a prototype, you know, and that's typically one-off. And then either you make the choice, I gotta mass produce this and then you have to go to factories or you keep it very exclusive. No? Mm-hmm. Um so what attracted me to the sort of mass production side is obviously how can you scale the products because it's it's I wouldn't say it's easy to make a one off, but it's easier. No, it's unique. Um but when you go to the manufacturing side and you start talking about a few thousand or a few hundred thousand of the same product, you no, uh, you encounter all kinds of different, um, well, issues from quality control. No, um, so th- that really, I was just really excited to learn about new processes and procedures and, and materials. I think, as you mentioned, working with materials, no, with wood, metal, fabrics, is is amazing. The computer can't replace that. The, the tactile involvement of the pro development and actually playing around with fa- materials um, is, I think, it's part of the creative process. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just wondering what kind of mindset requires. Yeah, I know people talk about things like design thinking and so on. You know, like it's very much, you know, that you need to be curious as well. You know, what, what do you when you think about yourself and your mindset? What, what kind of a person are you? I mean, let's go back to when you were a kid, just as an example. Often that's a good insight into you know what your real passions were. Were you the type of kid who was like you know taking a screwdriver and pulling things apart, or you know like sketching things? What were you like? Well, I was taking things apart a lot, but I wasn't an engineer, so I figured out I'm I'm not really good. <laughs> bringing things back to its original state, but I could actually create something new from it, um, <laughs> which was a different skill to have. Mm. Um, I think from a very young age, I was probably because of my parents' uh, environment. So my dad is a retired photographer. Uh, we had a very creative environment. I, I never understood it when I was a kid. I was looking at art on the wall, and for me it was, I can do that as well. Mm. Um but I only started to appreciate that actually at a later age. But I was from a very young age, I think, when I had to make the choice, Oscar, what are you going to do you know, for the rest of your life, basically, when you have to pick out a university? Um, anything creative. You no, know, I, I, I was thinking of becoming a chef or something in music or something in design, those three right. things. Um, I, I played music, but I figured out uh, I'm probably not going to be the best in music. There are probably better musicians out there. Um, cooking cooking was I kind of, funny enough, so I was not, I mean, I, I helped them. I was helping, helping the kitchen out a little bit, but there wasn't a massive passion 
although I really was intrigued by by cooking itself as a process because mm. I thought it was very creative. Um, design probably was the closest to to where I thought, well, this has a bright future for me. There's a lot of possibilities there. But to be honest, when you're sort of, let's say, 20 years old, uh, you have to make that choice which university you're going to. It's tough, no, because mm. you ultimately don't really know. It's a really gut feeling that you have. Mm. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It, it's you, you maybe have a gut feeling about the kind of area you want, but what happens in the next 10 years after that is often quite unrelated as well. <laughs> So yeah. you, uh, that, I mean, that's what I want to ask. I mean, obviously, you you're a creative guy, and you've explored many different creative disciplines. Obviously, your your father was creative as well. You grew up in a creative family. Um, you you studied with a background in art, and maybe you can see where I'm gonna where I'm going with this is that how do you then become a founder in a co working and event space in Hong Kong? Where's the connection there? What happened? Uh, it sounds like there was an accident or something. <laughs> uh, what happened? Uh, yeah, what happened was to take a little step a step back. Um, I w- actually had another business before this. Um, I ran it uh, for with a business partner for four years. Um, it was okay, but it wasn't great. No, it was the first business, um, and that was in uh, technology. Mm. Um, so fast forward to this business, I was just before um, the co-working, I was looking at whether I should go back to corporate you know, or actually do set up, set up my new a new business. Mm. Um, and by pure chance, I actually just uh, actually met uh, my business partner now, Thomas. Uh, he explained me about... Um, co-working his research and what I, what really triggered me in his story or in his narrative was he did not mention anything about money right. um, he, he talked about the vision he talked about the future of work um, and I found that really intriguing um, I wasn't part of the business yet then um, I was okay, I, and he he knew I was. Oh, I had a marketing. I, I was okay. I was okay in marketing, but actually that's a thing we skipped. Um, but I said, okay, I can help you out. Do some um, advice and consultancy work for a few days. You give me space, and uh, we'll see how that goes. After two weeks, I I spoke with Thomas. Said, listen, this is not going to work. No, um, I can give you all advice on the planet. But if you don't know what to do with it and they can't actually execute or implement it, it's pretty useless. Mm. So the only way this is going to work is is that I'm going to do this full time for three months. We'll see what happens. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it works, we'll review it. And that was actually the start of how I got involved in this business. And that, going back to your question, what attracts me in co-working is that what what why is it so creative in fact i think i've evolved from very practical design to sort of let's say a higher level of creative thinking hmm. thinking business anyone in business needs to be actually be creative in 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 terms of either a business solution or to be creative with the financing part of the business or creative in other things uh, the business environment nowadays is so highly competitive that you have to 
be creative in order to have a unique value proposition. Mm. And I guess that's that's what I really focus on, what makes our business unique. Right. And that, that requires, I think, a lot of creativity. Right. I mean, you're actually listed as the chief creative officer as well as co-founder of mm. the desk, right? So obviously, you know, you're not just doing creative, you are the creative guy in the company. In what, in many respects, if you look at co-working, it can easily be just a pure real estate play, can't it? I mean, you take Regus as an example, it's just, you know, okay, it's, it's offices which are just slightly a bit more flexible than your average office, right? Mm. There's a lot of that because there's a lot of money to be made out of that because obviously real estate's a very profitable business if you know how to do it and you have the scale and you access to the credit and so on. But, you know, when you look at co-working, what is it you try and do differently, creatively, to other co-working spaces? Yeah, um, a good question. I think where we are now, right now, with the market is that, now of, co- of course, you have the, now the, the big U.S. company we work that started seven years ago. Um, I think they really sort of brought this you know, to a global level. Now, it's, it's big globally now. Um, but the way we see co-working is, is still in, in its infancy. Now, you, as you mentioned, the way people look at co-working right now is probably from a financial perspective, hey, I can have a flexible lease. You know, so right. I don't have to sign in Hong Kong for two years agreement now. I can have a project room, an event space. I can do it for a week, a month. And it, there is flexibility in terms of lease. But that, that's actually very basic. To me, what co-working is really about, and hopefully the industry is is working on this, and we are definitely working on this, is I think the difference between a business center and co-working is that a business center just leases space out. With co-working, it is about community. It is about people. Right. The concept or the logic behind co-working is that if you have a more diverse environment, and you have more uh, different viewpoints, and you collaborate better, you get greater outcomes. Mm. This, does not, this does not happen in a traditional business center. So I think where co-working is right now is still at the very early phase of that. I don't think co-working companies have been able to illustrate that their community adds real value in terms of yeah. well mon- monetization of that. Uh, people still talk about uh, the interior and about having coffees and beer taps. That's that's all nice for for showbiz, but it does not add real value in terms of numbers. Mm-hmm. And I think the next step now is how can the industry show this that it's not only better to attract better talent or younger talent in co-working. Uh, there is more innovation, but actually by working together that you achieve greater things. And that ultimately is what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, agreed with you. So l- let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, a- as an example, so you're in Indonesia right now. Um, mm-hmm. The last time I was in Indonesia, I headed out to Bali. And okay. so, um, you know, Hubud, which is in Ubud, which is a, a co-working space, which literally is a bamboo building in the middle of a rice field. And... Um, it, what they've achieved there is pretty phenomenal. But, mm. you know, that was my sort of real first experience of a co-working space, which, like you say, was was a community. Because the, the thing is, they had an advantage. They, they're, you know, 
Bali's an island. Um, you know, there isn't a lot of uh, co-working options. Well, there wasn't back then, at least, available. So, you know, if, if you build a co-working space, it becomes a, a real community s- center for people. And, you know, you could go there and you could be like, you know, looking over a rice field. I mean, you'd have your coffee, obviously. And then the guy next to you is from Google and you ask the guy next to you, and you know, what do you do? I'm building a startup. And that's kind of what I thought a co-working space should become, right? Something like that. But I think you can, you know, they don't just do that every night. They have people come in and they have talks and they, you know, I think every day there's something going on. And in mm-hmm. the, the evening, there's like, you know, have their pecha kucha and that have all these different things going on and it's like pretty amazing, but it's kind of like full on experience, like moving out there and doing that. But, you know, I wonder if you could have that in a city when there's so many distractions and people could like, you know, go off and I don't know. I mean, if you had an experience of Hubbard, I mean, what, what do you think of that kind of way that approach to co-working? It's a bit wild, but <laughs> I think, I think it's pretty cool. It, it is very cool. I think they picked out the best environment to, to do some work. Um, well, the way I look at co-working, obviously, you have different audiences. So what you experienced in Bali, uh, I would say is, uh, well, these are individuals. I wouldn't say that on the whole, uh, a corporate company would send a whole team to Ubud to do some co-working. Um, but what happens in, um, uh, in uh, Bali is also co-working, but it, I think... That's how co-working actually started. But when we when we look forward, when we also look forward to uh, other audiences, then obviously co-working is not only for individuals or mm. consultants. Um, when you look at that sort of corporate level, SME and larger companies, they also need to innovate. It's also relevant that people at corporate level work closer together and yeah. work actually better together. You know? And they actually work really in silos at the moment. And they actually realize this. You know? And that's why I, th- I think you see such a demand surge into the SME and, and at corporate level yeah. where they realize, hey, we need to catch up. We need to catch up with those really early startups that have completely different hierarchies or flat hierarchies or different business models if we're not going to do something about this internally, if we're not going to explore other ways to innovate ourselves, we're going to lose out. Mm. Uh, and I think the market that we are looking at is not actually the really early startups. So what you mentioned about the events that happen uh, in most co-working spaces, we in fact actually don't really organize events. We notice through our research that the audience we attract uh, the people that actually don't really go to events a lot because mm. it's a different um, th- they require different um, services so if, if you're a really early startup you want to build your network because you start from zero from scratch so you go to a lot of events a lot of network events you, know, you, 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 suck, you suck up all this sort of Absolutely. EU inf- yeah. information if you're more established you have a team of 100 plus no, and bigger companies, then obviously you have an established network. No, you don't have to go to every event, except from people in sales and business de- development. Um, you, you don't go to every event to to absorb all that information because you, you're more established. You actually have this mm. in-house already, and so those people tend to go less to the event. So mm. uh, at least in our 
environment. So we tested this. So we, we actually stopped doing, we still host and sponsor events, but this, it's very rare that we actually organize our own events. Hmm. Now that's interesting. You've mentioned a few times, Oscar, about corporates and co-working. And mm-hmm. I've always been interested in this space because you wonder what may have started as a, a cost-saving exercise may actually end up being the the future of the business itself, a future model of these last large corporates. You know where they they start by sending a team to a co-working space, and then it's a department, and then it's an office. And uh, do you have any large corporates based out of the desk? Is that your plan? Uh, yes, we have a few a few companies that that work uh, with us. Um, I, I'm not sure if I can call all their names, but uh, yes, we, we we are working with large corporations mm. from uh, uh, no, uh, from logistics to law firms to now across across the whole industry right. um, you see we see and, I, and I'm sure that other co-working spaces notice this as well there is a higher demand for um, more space bigger spaces mm. um, or at least we see that right, right. And how does that work um, let, let's say I was a bank in Hong mm-hmm. Kong, as an example, um, you know, I decided to put my team into a co-working space because maybe it's not a cost-saving exercise. Maybe I want that team to, you know, become a bit more innovative or their customer-facing team and so on. Or, you know, maybe they're a products team. I want them to think about product development a bit more than they would be in the ivory tower, so to speak. So we send them to a co-working space and the pressure would be from my own you know, people around me in the bank is say, okay, right, they can be in a co-working space, but they have to have their own floor, right? And the floor mm-hmm. has to have like, you know, swipe keys and, you know, h- how do you make that work so that, you know, if a corporate goes into a co-working space, it doesn't end up becoming just, you know, a flexible office space for a corporate, you know, they can actually get, you know, everything you talked about, the community side, mm-hmm. how do they get that in that environment, which doesn't sort of conflict with their need to kind of, you know, obviously they've got to protect their, 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 well, not their property, but their businesses in a way that they're used to as well. Yeah, there seems a bit of a paradox, I think, eh, for outsiders. Um, well, of course, there, there is a fine balance. If, if uh, let's say, in bank, and actually we had someone coming to us that was planning to take an entire floor, uh, actually the whole space, and obviously there's not a lot of co-working involved or mm. diversity, let's say that, if, the, if there is just one company. Um, if you would have a whole building and, you, and each floor would have different uh, companies in there, I think in theory it is possible to create this community feel. But that really comes down to how you actually set this up. So this is about real community building. I don't think um, you, can, you need a, a single floor with different companies in there to build community. I mean, mean, that may be easier, but I think it is also possible to do this in an entire building or in an entire neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're looking at larger scale, obviously community building here, but it really comes down to, I think, and we invest a lot of time in, uh, in this of how people interact. Mm. No, this also like the behavioral science. No, this is, uh, becoming quite relevant now for us. How do people behave? No, what do they like and don't like? Mm. Um, so and that that to me is very intriguing. 
All right, well, let, let's, let's sort of dive into that a little bit. My background is psychology, so any oh, excuse, go. any excuse, <laughs> any excuse yeah. to talk about behavioral science. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how does that work? So, you know, how would you create, you talk about creating community in a building. Mm-hmm. What sort of, what are the nuts and bolts of that? I mean, you, you obviously said that you don't do events, for example, anymore, or, or not to the mm-hmm. extent that you did do. So you've made a conscious decision about that. How do you create a community? Because I guess the challenge here, Oscar, is it's not a reflection on you. It's the human nature just to kind of like retreat into our little world, you know, and just kind of like disappear in our comfort zone, right? That's na- that's natural. How, yeah. how, do, how do you counter that to a way that's beneficial? Because it makes sense for us to talk to people with different ideas and who may see things differently, right? Mm. Yeah, well, so l- let me explain a little bit what, what we think what makes our business unique. So traditional co-working spaces, they um, connect a member with a member. So if both members pay, they introduce them to each other. It makes a lot of sense. You know? But actually, if you look at uh, business, I always say the two things that you need in business. One is scale and one is trust. Right. So. Starting with the scale, so if you only connect a mem- member with a member, you actually create a very small community. You know? um, if and I also noticed is that if there's a lot of services around the building and in the neighbourhood that are relevant, the fact that neighbouring businesses don't necessarily pay for membership. Um, we feel that we should actually include them because mm. it benefits our members and vice versa. So, and actually, so that's what we actually are doing. We not only connect a member with a member, we actually connect them with the neighborhood as well, the neighboring businesses and mm-hmm. vice versa. So that, that creates a far bigger network. You know? That's the scale part. The other part is trust. So when you talk about trust and then we talk about people, you know, this, um, the way we want to build trust and building trust at neighborhood level, when I know or you know that someone works in the same building or across the street, it's actually a lot easier to meet. It's a lot easier to establish contact and actually have a coffee to make the first contact. And mm. it's actually easier to maintain that relationship and to actually build trust mm. versus someone that's overseas in New York or somewhere else. So actually including the neighborhood and building this trust and scale actually makes a lot of sense to us. You know? And and actually meeting people, old school handshake, and uh, <laughs> is actually really powerful. And I think that over the last decade it has almost disappeared. You know? I think the industry, investors in general, have focused so much on exponential growth you know, and big numbers and scalability of of platforms that they actually almost forgotten about okay how what does this platform actually do because right. we in, we are we are dealing with people here you know? and um so technology what the great thing about technology is it increases productivity and can scale it that's that's great and we need this but the other part in terms of engagement in building trust and loyalty that actually happens far better offline face to face so when I meet people for coffee give them a handshake it's it's far more efficient no uh, really 
And, and so, yeah, I, I'm not going too deep in the probably in the psychology of in the, um, the behavioral science part, but also we as human beings as social animals know the, the the four hormones that we produce, and those are triggered actually by by seeing someone, by actually a handshake or a hug. Um, that cannot be achieved through through digital means or online um, ways channels. Absolutely, yeah, you've nailed it there, Oscar. I think you know it's it's all about the offline. And talking about, I mean, just interestingly about the uh, excuse to bring in my psychology here, but talking about <laughs> talking about the hormones. I mean, there was there was a study. I mean, put it in the context of technology. I saw a study because I used to do a lot of research on young people and mobile phones, mm. and there was a a study which wasn't specifically done for the industry. It was one of those university uh, research pieces where they, they, uh, they measured the stress levels of teenagers and they measured it by oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And um, what they found was that, that when teenagers messaged mom, um, their, their stress levels remain, measured by the hormone remained the same. But when they actually sat in the same room as mom, their stress levels fell, you know, and, <laughs> and everybody, oh, yeah, no, they're digital natives, they live online. Well, here, here's like biological proof that we are, you know, offline beings living in an online world, right? You know, like you said, business gets done with a handshake because let's look, let's face it, you know, as a species, we're a million years old, but in the last what percentage of that have we had social media? You know, it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, right? You know, all, all our meaning is created in the offline. So that's that's why we crave community, not necessarily so much in the online sense, but in the real world sense, right? So I'm always very curious when people describe themselves as community builders. Yes, technology can make that billions and billions of people online, but ultimately it comes down to the offline, right? It's, you know, I build trust with this guy because I see this guy every day. I sit 20 meters away from him. I'm familiar with his face. You know, like I shake hands with him. That's how we human beings make trust, right? So how do you do that, right? I'm curious, like, how you actually build that. I mean, I don't know if it's it's something I can throw into the conversation here, but you actually have a community operation system. <laughs> I mean, so what's that all about? Well, and that's actually good that you bring this up because obviously the the big question is, can you scale trust and how do you actually scale it? Um, and of course, I think that's what we are looking at right now. We're looking at technology uh, and what I said, the way I see technology um, is that it's great for data analysis. We to create a methodology um, and to scale things you now to in, to optimize uh, processes and procedures. Um, but the physical space, now that's the virtual space, and then I have the virtual space, uh, the physical space where people meet. Um, that to us is also really relevant. Now that's why we have. This is what we are talking about. This, the now the O2O um, solution that everyone's been talking about for the last twenty years. Um, but it's actually it's actually coming together, I think, uh, now, and especially with community building. I think there are two parts of community building. One one part is obviously communication into productivity. You know? um, if I would have to talk on the phone with each person, I wouldn't probably get a lot of things done because it's, it's time consuming. But it has a different purpose versus if I WhatsApp someone or Facebook mes- mm. message someone. And it doesn't mean 
that I think both are relevant depending on the timing of it and depending on the state of relationship that you actually have with some, someone. So I think we, we are looking to see what we can, how we can increase building your network and building this, this trust. And also obviously at the same time, how, how often do you actually need to give this handshake and meet them? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that really is about community building. Uh, we, we're looking at, you no know, anything that we are looking at um, is about scalability. When we look at old, you know, we, we, when we look at smaller events, we do actually do events, you no, know, not that we completely have scrapped it, we actually do events for our members. But they're almost like uh, how a congest works. You know, it's very personal, you know? uh, we don't, just throw people together. We actually listen to them and see, hey, you wanna, you look for this person, and I may be, I may be able to help you. We have very informal gatherings between members every week, hmm. um, and that, and that actually, what I call it, are the, those micro moments. And all those micro moments, you know, when we talk about attribution model, leads to a bigger thing. Uh, and, so, and that's the way I look at sort of community building. So it is very intimate. It is. It needs to be very personal. But at the same time, we're looking at how can all those um, micro moments, events, and uh, things that we actually organize lead to something bigger for them. You know, that adds real value to their business. Uh, yeah. Fascinating. I mean, let's sort of, uh, just sort of in summarizing, fast forward a little bit. Let's go forward to i don't know 10 years from now 2028 okay and uh co-working in asia i mean obviously i think you're doing some very interesting things in co-working uh the co-working space in asia particularly has evolved very fast i mean we've got everything there now we've got you know as i said the bamboo co-working space in the rice field we've got we work uh, we have you guys you know you you have a, a wide mix of different options and you add to that the fact that Asia is moving very fast, um, ecosystems are developing, you know, large movements in population. And and then, you know, you've got all this, you add to this corporates who are thinking about outsourcing their, their businesses or their, you know, their facility side to co-working spaces and so on. Where do you think we're going to be in 10 years time? What was co-working going to look like? Can you see that far ahead? As a design guy, I'm going to put you on the spot because I think you're a creative guy. You could maybe illustrate some future scenarios for us hmm. well yeah i don't know about exact uh, years but if i look into the future i would say the future of works is more about flexibility uh in asia indonesia where i am right now i think has one of the largest uh, populations of of of, of, of uh, young the younger generation i think is massive here uh, the new generation that's coming up uh, and I think they, they demand that they grow up in a different work environment. They don't want to sit in a stuffy uh, HQ office anymore. So the, I see the future of business where people are more flexible. They still want to belong to a business, mm. but they have more flexibility of where they can work. You know? uh, they, traveling for one and a half hour to an office is actually ludicrous. Now, if you do that uh, in the morning and evening, there's three hours doing nothing, basically. Um, I think that's very inefficient. 
Um, but of, of course, that requires also a change in terms of mindset, mm. you know, where people still believe you need to be in the office from nine to five, otherwise they don't trust you. Uh, I think that needs to change as well. But I think the, with the millennial generation coming up, that will have to change. Because mm. if bigger companies are not going to adjust to that, they will lose all the best talent. You know, and they will go somewhere else that will offer this flexibility. Um, so and that's more the flexibility part. The other part of what I will see happening is the, the I would say, the, the evolution of globalization. So there is a movement against globalization um, where people start looking more at their own neighborhoods and actually mm. start connecting um, more with people around them. Now we've seen... We spoke, I hear this left and right at uh, conferences all the time about smart cities. Mm. But I believe we should actually take it even st- a step back with actually building smart communities. There is so much knowledge and um, services available if you would actually know your neighborhood. And a lot of people don't know their neighborhood. They don't know their neighbors in, in general. Right. Um, and as, when you talk about work, how many people do actually know what's on the 25th floor or even on the first floor? You know, most people go direct to the office floor and that's it. They're actually really not communicating with each other. They're not mm. connected. So I see a future where, where that, those people, where we increase work, which is, that, that sounds very uh, boring, but I see that there will be far more interaction, far more... Um, I think knowledge sharing um, within local communities. Mm. Awesome. Oscar Venhaus, everybody, the co-founder of The Desk. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I know, obviously, you're a busy man. You are traveling as we, well, as we can see today, you're just straight off the plane in Jakarta. And I appreciate the fact you've been flexible yourself in making this happen. Oscar, where do we go and find out more about you? <laughs> uh, well, if you're in Jakarta uh, uh, on Thursday, I'll be speaking at a, a workshop. Um, but yes, well, of course, check out our website uh, you know, of the desk in Hong Kong. Um, I have a Twitter account. I, I'm not sure if you share that or not, uh, Graham. Well, yeah, we'll put it all in the show notes. Okay, so yeah, so Twitter, Instagram, the whole, the whole. They're all there. <laughs> They're all there. He's a creative guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Oscar- or, yeah. Write me a letter. <laughs> well, you, there you go. As we talked about analog, that is a way to make an impression. When was the last time you ever received a handwritten letter? So, yeah, you know, if exactly. you want to get somebody's attention, Oscar Venhaus, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for your time, Graham. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.